0: Hi, everybody. It's great to see you, and I thank you for making this time together part of your weekend. I'm privileged to share the scripture with us uh, today, and the text of scripture that I want to focus on and use as a foundation for our time together is found in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, which says, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Join me for for prayer as we start. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the moments that we have to open the Bible and study it. And I want to ask that your Holy Spirit would be present to open our minds to understand and apply the truths that we're about to hear from your word so that we might go from here in a bit, with an appreciation and greater gratitude for what you've given to us, and that we might be one step closer in the ultimate transformation process of you making us like your son, Jesus Christ. And I make this prayer in his name, amen. One of the privileges of being a human being is the ability to communicate with words and sentences that convey information, ideas, and opinions. Animals cannot do this. I know what you're saying. My little fufu understands everything I say. I get it. I can tell our Dalmatian, Lulu, go to bed. And she'll hang her head and put her tail between her legs and slink off to her crate, because apparently she understands those words. But I've also noticed that never, not even once, has she responded to me this way, oh, kind and caring master, That metal box you call a crate is really a jail cell to me, and I don't prefer to be banished there, either now or ever. Thank you so much. I heard of an oceanic scientist, researcher, who was studying the communication abilities of whales in the ocean, which is where whales usually are found. And he came to the conclusion that whales have the ability to communicate with one another through the water over distances of hundreds of miles. And while reporting his findings, a curious listener asked, what would one whale want to say to another whale that was hundreds of miles away? And the researcher reported, well, as best as I can understand it, he was saying, can you still hear me? (laughs) Unlike animals, humans, are created in God's image, a part of which includes speech and relationship. God himself has communicated to humankind in words and sentences that convey meaning and propositional truth. And he's given us this ability, not just so that we can communicate with one another, but so that we can communicate with him with the creator and he with us the creator wants a communicative connection with the ones he has created that includes you and me god has spoken and the author of proverbs expressed this made this statement about god's communication with us every word of god is flawless The Bible highlights a handful of ways that God has communicated with human beings over the millennia, including general truths about God that have been made known through nature, through the creation, about his existence and his power, but also some direct appearances by God to certain individuals, also direct and indirect communications from God through dreams and angelic visitors and the pronouncements of priests and prophets. Ultimately, God has communicated to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And the scriptures, described as the written word of God, bear witness to all that God has said and continues to say to us. As such, this book is the infallible and indispensable word of God through which he speaks to you and to me. And today I want to highlight the privilege that is ours to have God's written word. And I want to share with you three simple statements, all of which begin with the words God has spoken. Now there's some presuppositions that undergird everything I say, and if you are on board with these presuppositions, you'll you'll be hanging with me. If you're not, you may be fighting me a little bit this morning, but that's okay too. My presuppositions are, number one, God exists. Number two, God has revealed himself to us because he wants a connection with us, a relationship. And number three, the scripture, the written word of God, represents the principal manner in which God has spoken and still speaks. You ready? First statement is God has spoken and his word is clear. Clear. Maybe your experience of the Bible has not been very clear. Maybe you find it confusing, even incomprehensible. But let me ask you this, rhetorically, if the Creator has spoken because He wishes to make Himself known to the ones He created, does it not make sense that He would communicate in a way that the created ones could understand? He has. And His word is understandable to anyone who wishes to hear it. The Bible may not answer every question you have, but it answers every question you need an answer for. There's a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. Actually, the word is perspicuity of Scripture, but ironically, that's a word that's not clear, <laughs> at least not to me. So let's call it the clarity of Scripture. And I want to quote to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written about 350 years ago, a great summary of Christian teaching, and many churches still use the Westminster Confession today. Talking about the clarity of Scripture, it says, those things which are necessary to be known Believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means, that means reading, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them, eloquently worded. Do you know what it means? It says the average Joe can understand the main points of Scripture when he reads it or hears it read. Explaining the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture further, it means that God's Word is freely accessible to every reader of ordinary intelligence without requiring special education. Of course, you have to be able to understand the language that you're reading it in and not be so preoccupied with contrary thoughts as to prevent your understanding. But the result is that no one needs to wait for any clergy or priest or pope or scholar or ecumenical counsel to explain the real meaning of any part of the Bible. It means you and I can be Bible DIYers. Bible do-it-yourselfers. Now, I don't want us to be naive, any book from antiquity uh, can be a challenge to modern readers. There's a need for a translation. Language is, it could be an issue, or understanding customs or ways of thinking from previous uh, uh, centuries or millennia. And so these kinds of things dictate that reading any ancient books is going to take some focus, maybe some work, but it's not impossible. I mean, I felt that way reading Shakespeare, didn't you? Actually, the main thing with Shakespeare wasn't that I didn't understand it, but I was not highly motivated to understand it, right? But I am motivated to understand the scripture. I want to be a Bible DIYer. Each one of us can be. You can open it up for yourself, read it, and hear from the God who gave it and who wants to speak to you through it. I want this for my junior high students, whom I teach every Sunday at 915 And you can ask any of them, and they will tell you something I say almost every week, and it's this. You are not too young to read, understand, and build your life on the Bible. And I will tell them that the person you're going to be in the future depends very much on the person you decide to be right now, and the most important decision you can make is to cultivate the habit of opening the Bible, reading it for yourself, and thinking about its significance for your life. That is true for all of us, no matter where you might be in your spiritual journey. So I came across a useful book, and I'm using some of its material with my junior high students, 30 Days to Understanding the Scripture by Max Anders. As a result, my junior highers can tell you what the Bible is about in a single statement. The Bible is an account of God's plan to rescue and redeem a fallen humanity. We review very frequently twelve errors of the Bible narrative. They can tell you a name for each of the twelve errors, a summary of it, and a symbol that we use to remember it. I want them to enjoy the Scripture, understand it, and commit to building their lives on it. So, at home with my daughters, with my girls who are eight and ten, we're reading through Sean Ebersole's book, "What's the Bible Really Like?" and based uh, so geared for children and based on stories of life what life is like in Bangladesh she highlights every analogy or metaphor that the bible uses to describe itself the bible is like milk it gives spiritual nourishment the bible is like solid food it helps us grow to maturity the bible is like a mirror it shows us our hearts and points out what's wrong in our lives the bible is like fire it purifies our lives the Bible is like a lamp. It guides our lives. So God has spoken, and he wants to communicate with you, not to confuse you. His word is clear and understandable, and you can trust it. Someone may object. Someone may object. Oh, everyone has their own interpretation of the Bible. It means different things to different people. You have to figure out what it for yourself what it means for you. Actually, the clarity of the Bible means that what the Bible means, it means for everyone. Its meaning is not relative, its meaning is not subjective, or up to each person to determine for himself or herself. I think it might be helpful, as we think about this, to distinguish between two things. Meaning... And significance so stick with me here any Bible passage or text has one and only one meaning to quote again from Westminster Confession of Faith it says the true and full sense of any scripture is not manifold but one so any Bible passage or text has one and only one meaning though listen it likely has a level of significance that is vast implications which are many Applications, which could be numerous and very personal. So I'll give you an example, not from the Bible, but from everyday life. Suppose I say to you, come over to my house tonight at 8 o'clock. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, it's very very clear what I want you to do. I want you to come over to my house tonight at 8 o'clock. What is not clear is the significance of that invitation. The meaning, crystal clear, unmistakable. Maybe I want you to come over because my son will be coming home at 8.30, so we're going to have a surprise party for him. Or maybe I've been observing some things in your life that uh, I'm a little concerned about and I'm going to talk to you very personally and directly about them. That sounds like fun. The meaning, come over to my house at 8 o'clock, it's very clear. The significance has yet to be determined. And a Bible passage is like that too. It It has one meaning, but often a broad level of significance. When seminarians are studying New Testament Greek and they get to the place where they're able to start reading the New Testament in Greek, you know where they begin? In some of the, in the writings of the Apostle John, maybe the Gospel of John or the Epistles of John, because he could explain profound truth in simple language. Like, for instance, Jesus' statement that John records for us in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The meaning is very clear. The words are understandable. I am, simple to be verb. Words we understand, way, truth life. And no one can mistake the exclusivity of Jesus' claim to be the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the meaning is clear, understandable, unmistakable, but the implications of that statement are significant, vast, deep. To some the implications may also be disturbing. Some may bristle or even reject Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. The significance of the statement is vast, but the meaning is clear. The ability to understand what Jesus is saying is available to everyone. The willingness to understand the significance of his words, that may be another matter. God's word is clear if you are open to hear it. So why do many... Christians struggle with regular reading of the Bible. Matthew Kelly has written a book called Rediscover Jesus. I'm working through it right now. Matthew Kelly is a Roman Catholic author, and he popularized the concept of becoming the best version of yourself, by which he means the person God created and intends for you to be. That's the best version of yourself. Now, he's got a Rediscover series. Other titles in the series include, as a Catholic, you'll, he, he, he's, you'll understand why he calls it Rediscovering the Saints and Rediscovering the Rosary. Those titles don't nearly interest me as much as this one, Rediscover Jesus. In this book, he had asked a question, why don't Christians read the Bible? And he He made an interesting observation that it's not so much we don't have time or that we can't understand it. He suggests that we're really not on board with the transformation that a commitment to the scripture will bring about in our lives. Listen to what he says. The explanation for why we don't read the Bible more is deeply profound. We know the word of God has power to transform our lives. And the uncomfortable, unspoken, and often avoided truth is we don't want our lives transformed. We want some tweaking, but not transformation. We want God in arms reach, uh, so we can reach, so he's there when we need him, or maybe, maybe to polish off some of our rough edges, but a transformation from the inside out that a lifelong commitment to the Bible will bring about. Oh, that's, uh, that's another, another matter. See, building your life on the Bible is a lifelong pursuit. In which we open ourselves up completely, heart and mind, soul, spirit, everything we are, to an ongoing communication with God, who created us for that purpose. And through that pursuit, we experience in every way the transformed life that God has in mind for us, both as a church and as individual followers of Christ. God has spoken and his word is clear. He wants to speak to you. Are you inclined to hear him? Well, our second statement to consider this morning is that God has spoken and his word is perfect. Perfect. So the text with which we began, Proverbs 35, uses the word flawless to describe God's word. So in four different places in the New International Version, God's word is described with this word flawless. 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one 31 and Psalm eighteen thirty are identical verses as both passages contain David's song of praise when God delivered him from his enemies. And he says, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. Some English translations, instead of flawless, they say his word is without fault. It's pure. It's tested and tried. It proves true. So a similar statement then occurs in Psalm 12, verse 6, in which God's words, this time plural, not just his word, but his words, are compared to gold or silver refined in a furnace, emphasizing the purity, uncorrupted nature of God's word. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver, purified in a crucible, like gold, refined seven times. I love the Living Bible's version of it. All he says is purest truth. What is the psalmist referring to, though, when he says God's word? I believe he's referring to God's communication in whatever form it has come to him. David received communication from God through the priests, through the prophet Nathan, who brought him God's word on multiple occasions. And I think he's also referring to the written word of God, such as he had in his time, which would surely have included the first five books of our Old Testament, the books of Moses, and maybe some of the early history of Israel books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And for us today... God's communication, the word of God, is the entirety of this collection of books, 66 books as we have in our Bibles, the product of prophets and psalmists and apostles and spirit-controlled individuals who are described in the Bible as holy men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. So here... And in other places, the Bible makes an unprecedented claim about itself as to be the perfect, pure, faultless, flawless, reliable, errorless, trustworthy word of God. It is an extension of God himself who is pure and perfect and faultless and reliable and trustworthy and incapable of error. So also is his word. See, the logic is very simple. The first premise is that God is perfect and cannot err. The second premise is the Bible is God's word. And our conclusion then, those things being true, is the Bible then is perfect and cannot err. Because God himself is. And this is his word. So there's two words that I think are worth uh, adding to your your vocabulary and understanding. They may be familiar to you, they may not be, but they're, they're, they're important. And the first is the word inspiration inspiration is a word that is used to describe the bible's own claim about itself as having been breathed out by god which is what 2 timothy 3:16 says all scripture is inspired by god literally god breathed it's inspiration is the process by which god's holy spirit guided the human authors of the scripture, so that what they recorded, even though they were writing in their own human vocabulary and style, what they wrote was exactly what God wanted to communicate. As, and as such, canon must be considered the very word of God. The apostle Peter explained it a little further in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He explained that God is the primary cause of the scripture. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's... That's the mysterious supernatural work of God to inspire this Bible. Another useful word that does not appear in the scripture, but which can clearly be deduced from what scripture teaches about itself is the word inerrancy. And that literally means without error. well, this is what it means, being entirely God-given, the scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. No less in what it says about God's acts of creation, about the events of world history, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. As such, the Bible is, a, is of infallible divine authority in all matters on which it touches. It's to be believed, affirmed, embraced, and trusted in all that it says. Objections have been raised to the notion of the Bible being an errorless book. You've probably heard them. Maybe you've thought them. And I want you to, to, to follow me on, on, on thinking through a, a few of these objections. Here's the first one that you may have heard or even thought But the Bible is a human book, so inevitably it contains errors. All humans make mistakes. After all, to err is human, right? It's true in one sense as we respond to this idea that the Bible is a human book. It was written by some 40 human authors over a period of a thousand years. And although to err is human, that doesn't mean to be human is to always err, does it? You may sit down this afternoon and write out a couple of pages of stuff about your life. Would we conclude that your writing is, contains errors simply because you are a human being? There are human-produced books that are without error. There are math books out there in which every formula is worked out correctly. I imagine there could be phone books in which every number is correct. Although some of us change our cell phone numbers so frequently, it's immediately out of date when they produce it. Do you still get a phone book delivered to your house? But think about this. How much more can we have confidence in the Bible as a book without errors since God himself, by his Holy Spirit, is the source of the words and the one who supernaturally guided the human authors in what they wrote? We can have that confidence. Let's consider a second objection, a very common one that you may have heard or thought. Okay, we can trust the Bible in matters of faith and salvation, but we need not expect it to be inerrant in other matters, like history or science. It's not a history book or a science book, after all. This view is known as limited inerrancy, which to me is a bit of an oxymoron. But the idea is that we can view the Bible as spiritually without error but not literally in every detail like science and history. Now this idea has become in vogue in the modern era to see the Bible as true whenever it talks about salvation or faith or spirituality without having to accept it as factually true in matters of history or science. And the part of the Bible that in particular comes under attack is the first 11 chapters of Genesis which are particularly doubted as to their historical reliability. They're categorizing the accounts of creation, Adam and Eve, the, the flood, as myths, or maybe allegories, but certainly not history. This, in my view, is very unfortunate. I picked up a Bible at a thrift shop, 25 cents. Nice zippered cover, gold-edged pages, this is the new American Bible. It says on the spine, official Catholic Bible. This was produced, printed, and endorsed by the Catholic Church in 1970. And it, in the opening pages, it says, it describes itself as being complete with illustrations and explanations that facilitate the understanding of the text. Now, I was reading in the preface to the book of Genesis and I came upon this explanation hope which I guess was put there to facilitate my understanding I want you to listen carefully it says the interpreter of Genesis which is anyone who's reading it will recognize at once the distinct object that sets chapters 1 through 11 apart the recounting of the origin of the world and of man primeval history To make the truths contained in these chapters intelligible to the Israelite people destined to preserve them, they needed to be expressed through elements prevailing among the people at that time. For this reason, the truths themselves must therefore be clearly distinguished from their literary garb. Can I rephrase that for you? Do your best to find some spiritual value among these stories while recognizing that they're just myths or maybe allegories, not factual history. Now I don't know if this is the official position of the Catholic Church, but it would sadden me if it was the official position, official view of Genesis 1 through 11 by the largest church in the world. To me, this is nothing but a sad capitulation to the anti-supernatural, anti-theistic bias that prevails in modern scholarship. My only consolation was the realization that many Catholics aren't reading the Bible to begin with, let alone the preface notes to the book of Genesis. Unfortunately, many Protestants aren't either. But before we go, and decide that some of the Bible's material is mythical or simply allegorical, before we write off parts of the Bible, I'd like you to think about a couple of things by way of response. First is, your view of Jesus is gonna be affected because Jesus viewed and spoke of Old Testament events as literal events, literal history. It's unmistakable to hear Jesus speak and understand what he thought of the Old Testament. He spoke of the creation of the world. He speaks of Adam and Eve as literal historical people. He based his teaching on the permanency of marriage, on the literal marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He spoke of Cain's murder of his brother Abel as an actual event. He spoke of the flood as an actual event. I read this morning in Matthew where Jesus compared three literal days of Jonah in the whale to the three literal days that Jesus himself would spend in the tomb. Now, some would suggest that Jesus was just accommodating himself to the prevailing views of his day. I would suggest that Jesus, that that to me would suggest that Jesus, as God, though he knew the truth, that the events of Genesis 1 through 11 were not factual, he spoke of them as if they were. That, to me, makes him sound deceitful and not the way, the truth, and the life as he claimed clearly. Jesus accepted the literal historicity of the Old Testament, and so should we. Let me give you another response to the idea that the parts of the Bible can't be trusted. There's important Christian doctrines which are based on a literal understanding of Old Testament events, including our understanding of salvation. Your view of salvation will be very much impacted by what you do with the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Our theology of salvation rests on the belief that a literal man named Adam disobeyed God and fell, bringing death to all. And another literal man, Jesus, obeyed God's will, conquered sin, bringing life to all who believe. If you read Romans 5, 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul takes a very literal understanding of the events in Genesis 3 as the basis for his teaching on human depravity and the reason why all people literally die. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, for all have sinned. Later, he would write in 1 Corinthians 15:45. he compares the first Adam with the second Adam, which is Christ, as representative heads of the human race. You can't study those passages seriously and also deny that Paul is affirming a literal historical Adam as a real factual person just as much as Jesus was a literal, historical, factual person. Author Paul Tripp says, the first Adam represented us all. And when he faced Satan, he believed his lies, succumbed to his trickery, and fell into sin. Christ had to come as the second Adam, again as our representative, to face Satan. Thus, before his public ministry, Christ faced his foe. Three times he was tempted with the same old lies and trickery. Three times he defeated Satan, demonstrating his power over the forces of evil and accomplishing a great victory for us. You see, our salvation rests on the fact of a literal historic first Adam who sinned and a literal historic second Adam who defeated sin. R.C. Sproul counters the idea of this uh, uh, limited inerrancy this way. He says, though the Bible is indeed redemptive history, it is also redemptive history. And this means that the acts of salvation wrought by God actually occurred in the space-time world. We can trust the Bible on all levels. There's other objections that are worth pursuing. Can I survey two more just really briefly? Another objection that you may have thought or heard is this one. It says, there's no way to know that the Bible we hold today accurately reflects what the authors originally wrote. Have you heard or thought that? The reality is, however, that the science of textual criticism affirms the unparalleled reliability of the scripture as compared to other ancient writings. We have such an abundance of very old manuscripts and copies of the scriptures, and you compare and contrast them, the differences between them are so minute as to be inconsequential that we can have an extremely high level of confidence that what we hold today in our hands accurately reflects the original. Norm Geisler says we have more, better, and earlier copies of the Bible than from any book of the ancient world. Frederick Kenyon summed up the issue in his book, Bible and Archaeology, this way. He says, the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Fourth objection to the idea of a trustworthy, reliable, errorless Bible is this. Maybe you've heard or thought this. The Bible's filled with obvious contradictions, therefore it cannot be inerrant. But is it? Here's our response. There are many allegations of error in the Bible, but no demonstrations of error. Now let me ask you this rhetorically. Don't you think that if the Bible could be demonstrably shown to be fraudulent and trustworthy, that by now someone would have succeeded in doing so? But no one has. And see, what at first may appear as a contradiction Very often, upon closer scrutiny and study, have been shown not to be contradictions at all. And the trustworthy, errorless reliability of the Scripture has been the historic position of Christianity since the beginning. You go to the fourth century, and Church Father Augustine said this. He said... If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in scripture, it's not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either A, the manuscript is faulty, or B, the translation is wrong, or C, you have not understood. And so many apparent contradictions have been resolved with further study that even any remaining ones that are still in question, we have the confidence they will eventually be resolved as well. See, a view of God's word as holy and entirely perfect and without error has been the orthodox, authentic, historic view of Christianity since the earliest days of the church. His word is perfect. It can be fully trusted. So that brings us to, inevitably, to our third and final statement to consider this morning. God has spoken, and his word is Essential. So look one last time at Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. How are those two phrases connected? Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Here's how. The promise of a shield and a refuge is for those who believe and trust in the flawless word of God. You can find in God a refuge by hearing and trusting in his word. We were made to experience that kind of connection with God, with our creator. God has spoken, and he is speaking to each of us. Apart from that, we have no shield or refuge. We are adrift, without a rock, without a foundation. But God has spoken. His word is clear. This word is perfect, His word is essential. I wanna wrap up with two quick points. If the creator has spoken, what higher purpose have the created ones than to hear and to listen? I can think of none. And I wanna to suggest to you today that unless you as the created one are listening to the creator speak through his word, then you're not living life as fully as the creator intends for you. His word is essential. Here's my second statement. God has spoken, but I cannot do your listening for you. You have to open the Bible and read it and meditate on what it means for your life and respond in turn back to the God who is speaking to you and who wants to be connected to you. I've said it before, no matter where you are in your faith journey, whether you're a seeker just searching or you just started out recently, or you're well advanced in your faith, no matter where you are right now, the most effective way to bring about growth and transformation is to read the Bible and think about what God is saying to you through it. Think about its significance for your life. All right. This is it. Wrapping up. What would you say is the most significant technological invention of the modern age? Would you say the airplane, the personal computer, the smartphone? I want to suggest to you that the most significant technological advancement came on the scene in the year 1450 when a guy named Johannes Gutenberg invented something called the printing press. That's not a picture of him, they didn't have color photography back then. (laughs) Up until 1450, every book that needed to be copied or reproduced had to be done by hand copying. But he invented a printing press and the very first book he printed was a Latin version of the Bible. I think he printed 181 copies of it. It was a work of art, unprecedented. And there are some copies of that original printing still in existence today. But within a short time, and you know, I think all these other uh, inventions like the typewriter and the word processor and the personal computers, these are just further iterations. It all started right there with that printing press. And suddenly, within a short time, Never before had this been possible in the history of the world. A person could have a copy of any book, but in particular, the word of God in their hands in a language that they could read and understand. So fast forward, so that's why I consider the printing press the most significant invention in the last 600 years or so, as it put the written word of God into the hands of ordinary people like me and like you. So fast forward to January 2020, and never in the history of the world has it been easier to have a clear, reliable copy of the scripture in your hands, on your phone, in your earpods, before your eyes, and ultimately in your heart. Never before has it been easier than it is today. Easier now than ever before in the history of the universe. God's word is clear. Clear. You can understand it. God's word is perfect. You can trust it. God's word is essential. You can build your life on it. Thank you, God, for the gift that is your word, for the connection that you desire to have with us. And may we go from here renewed in our appreciation for this gift for you and with a deeper resolve to open it and to listen to your voice. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.